0: Amen. If you would turn to Revelation 22, you know, it's sharing times like the ones we just, one we just had, that uh, reminds me of how desperately we need a word from God in our lives, um, a word from someone who will tell us exactly what the truth is, and doesn't tell us the truth just to make us afraid or feel bad, but actually to drive us to the only one who can meet our needs and to truly make us happy. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to continue uh, finishing up the book of Revelation. I want to look at verses 6 through 21 or at least begin doing that today. We we live in a very, very interesting world. Obviously, uh, our sharing time is a reflection of just how difficult this world is. Uh, I read the news just to find out what God ordained for yesterday, that kind of thing, or what God ordained for today, and, and obviously there are all kinds of things going on in our world, and um, the Bible is meant to help us deal with a, the real world we live in by helping us understand what's real in this world Um, There's a story in Fox News just this morning in which the the heading says a Harvard University professor and behavioral scientist has been accused of fabricating major findings in a decade-old study on honesty. So this professor who did the study on honesty is now accused of being dishonest in presenting her findings. It's interesting in the passage we're going to read here, it talks about the world we live in is a world in which naturally sinners love lying and practice lying. And so the Bible is meant to help us really understand God as he truly is, understand ourselves as we truly are, both in terms of our natural sinfulness and in terms of what's different about us as Christians once we come to faith in Christ, and to give us the ammunition we need, the help we need, the encouragement, encouragement we need. When we walk through really difficult things, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, we need a word from God. And so that's why I'm thankful for the Bible. And I would encourage you, if you're, if you're struggling to get into the Bible on a da- daily basis, uh, don't quit struggling and fight even more to do that because the reality is we need a word from God to sustain us. So if you would look with me at verses 6 through 21 of Revelation 22, the very last words that we have in our Bible. And it says in verse 6, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he, Who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book? I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying." I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, we do pray and ask that you would grant the Holy Spirit to teach us, to enable us to see what we need to see, and to believe and trust you, to trust your word. And so we pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what we have in these verses, the last verses in, in the book of Revelation is a discussion of the return of Jesus Christ. That's the theme. Uh, three times in this passage it says, in verse 7, uh, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. In verse 12, again, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And then finally, in verse 20, Jesus says again, I am coming quickly. And then if you break down the passage, the first Part of the passage is talking about the return of Christ in different ways. Then it focuses on what's going to happen when Christ returns, especially in terms of judgment. And then it moves to an invitation to escape that judgment, an invitation to take the water of life so that you do not have to come under the judgment of Christ when He returns, and so I'd like to begin just talking about what it says in verses six through eleven when it talks about the importance of preparing for the return of Jesus. It's interesting. Um, for a long time now, uh, people have talked about what the end of the world might look like, and there's a man named Bertrand Russell who was a philosopher. A British philosopher and an atheist and back in the 50s he talked about what he thought was going to happen before the end of the 20th century and he was obviously wrong because we're into the 21st century but it's interesting what he said because a lot of people still think that the world is going to end in one of three ways and the first thing he said was either um There's going to be just a total end of life altogether that he thought that maybe, you know, we were going to, you know, blow ourselves up with a nuclear bomb or something like that. And so he talks about the end of all human life on our planet. And there are some movies that seem to go that far in terms of it thinking that, you know, maybe a comet is going to hit our planet and just everyone and everything is going to die. And that's going to be the way everything ends. Secondly, he said it's possible that everything is going to kind of implode. And it's going to be like a dystopian type of movie where things are really bad, like Blade Runner or The Hunger Games or something like that, where, life is really hard and there's this oppression and there's a struggle for survival. He said that could be what happens as well. Or, interestingly enough, he said the third option would be a unification of the world under a single government in which that government basically has all the weapons and oppresses the whole world. Now, there's some connection between two and three, I think, in various ways. But interestingly enough, he would say that it's very possible that we're moving toward a time when the world is going to unify, but they're going to unify in such a way that it's not going to be totally um, peace and joy and happiness for everyone. That's interesting because in our day and time, there's a huge move toward the unification of the world. The UN talks about it. The Great Reset with the World Economic Forum talks about it. And that's the whole push. You may not understand why our government is making certain decisions, but based on the kinds of things that world leaders are talking about, it makes perfect sense because they're trying to unify the world. And therefore, certain things have to happen in order for that to take place. And so, so, to some degree... I think he was right. There's there's going to be a unification of the world. But at that unification is all a part of God's plan to do what it says uh, Jesus is going to do when he comes back. And that's what is talked about in these verses. So look at verse six, which says, and he said to me, and this is probably one of the angels that had one of these seven uh, bowls speaking to John. He said to me, these words are faithful and true, which means what, and it's probably a reference to the whole book, all the things that you've seen and heard, all the things that have been declared to you are faithful and true, so count on it, it's going to happen. Um, And so what is he referring to? If you think about what the book of Revelation is about, let me just give you what I think is a nutshell version of the book of Revelation. The very first chapter is a picture of Jesus in all of his glory, where he's resurrected, he's reigning over everything, and he is in charge. A lot of people don't believe that. They don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe he's ruling and reigning over everything. But... The word of God says this is exactly what's happening. Even if you can't see it with your physical eyes, this is the reality of what is happening. Then he goes on to talk about the seven churches and how Jesus, who rules and reigns, is walking among the seven churches, which is meant to say that everything that goes on in the name of Christ, good or bad, he's very much interested in what is going on. He's very much about shepherding All those flocks that claim the name of Christ. And if you read through the list of churches and how he describes the churches, some of those churches were being faithful, some of them weren't. And yet Jesus says, I rule and reign, I shepherd my people, and I shepherd all those flocks that claim my name. But it goes on from there to talk about the fact that not only is he ruling and reigning over his church, But the seven seals are about the fact that he rules and reigns over history. That everything that's happening between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, Jesus is in charge of it. There is not, as R.C. Sproul would say, not a molecule that is a rogue molecule in the universe. Every molecule is under the authority and rule and reign of Jesus. And therefore, we can trust God in the midst of that. Then it goes on from the seven seals to talk about the seven trumpets. And a trumpet is something that wakes people up. It gets people's attention. So it's a picture of what God does to wake people up to a judgment that's coming, whether it's a judgment that um, points to the end or whether or not it's the, the judgment of the end. It's a warning. And Jesus is in charge of those events that actually warn us, that the return of Christ is coming. Then finally, you have the seven bowls, which is God's last temporal judgments on the earth that I believe are also part of God's final call to repentance to people. And then finally, what we have in chapters 21 and 22 is the fact that Jesus has ruled and reigned over the church. He's ruled and reigned reigned over history. He's brought warning judgments, and he's brought... Just judgments, and it's all that he might ultimately bring heaven to earth. That's what we want. That's what the Great Reset is all about. That's what the UN is talking about. That's about what all those in uh, places of authority in the world are talking about. How can we eradicate death uh, through AI? How can we eradicate sin, uh, or excuse me, excuse me, sickness and that kind of thing? How can we bring heaven to earth it's what man is trying to do and yet jesus says i will do that but not in the way that man thinks and certainly not through what man can do and so when you think about what it says about these words are faithful and true it's really important to ask ourselves whose words to me are faithful and true at our wedding, we had a song uh, by Stephen Curtis Chapman. And the title of the song is, My Redeemer is Faithful and True. And I think at least um, this passage that we just read here is at least part of the basis for the song. Because the song says this, As I look back on the road I've traveled, I see so many times he carried me through. And if there's one thing that I've learned in my life, my Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything he has said he will do. And every morning his mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. My heart rejoices when I read the promise. There is a place I am preparing for you. I know someday I'll see my Lord face to face. Because my Redeemer is faithful and true. It goes on to say, and In every situation he has proved his love to me. When I lack the understanding, he gives more grace to me. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything he has said, he will do. And every morning, his mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. I believe that song sums up very well what the scripture is saying there when it talks about these words are faithful and true. God will do everything he says he's going to do, which means he will keep every promise that he's made to his people. It means when he says, not only is he faithful to his promises, but He's he tells us the truth. His word is faithful. He does what he says he's going to do. His word is true. He's He's not lying to us about what the future holds. He's not lying to us about himself. He's not lying to us about uh, who we are in Christ. He's not lying to us about what the just judgment is if we do not receive forgiveness in Christ. He is telling us the truth. And so that's important for us to realize and think about is in my own life, whose word do I consider faithful and true? Do I consider our president's word faithful and true? Do I consider a past president's word faithful and true? Do I consider Dr. Fauci's word faithful and true? Just pick somebody that claims authority and wants you to trust them. Doesn't mean if you're in a position of authority that you shouldn't in some sense ask people to trust you. But the question is, who is our ultimate authority and whose word do we ultimately trust? Even when we're trusting someone, God tells us, to submit to as an authority who is to be the one that we ultimately put our trust in even when we follow just authority and so god is calling us to ask that question do do you believe the bible is faithful and true do you believe my words god says are faithful and true or do you put more stock in your own opinion do you put more stock in someone else's opinion Whose words are you really depending on? And that's always the reality. That's always a situation because when we get into the valley, when we go through hard times, we have to cope somehow. And so we look for some kind of authority to depend on. And it may be the authority of our own heart. maybe may be the authority of another man or another woman. The question is, are we trusting in God? Because... This book is written to overcomers. It says those who overcome in chapter 21 will enjoy all these blessings. So what does it mean to overcome? Well, first John says it means to trust God no matter what. Trust his word no matter what. Even if you have to die for the name of Christ, you trust him to the end. That's what it means to overcome. That no matter what the situation is, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm not going to turn my back on him. And so um, he goes on to say that the God of the spirits of the prophets is the one who's shown us these things. And, And what does that really mean? Well, it means that all the Old Testament prophecies are consistent with all the prophecy that has been revealed in the book of Revelation. That there's a consistency The God of one is the God of the other. The God who revealed what we see in the Old Testament is the one who's revealed to John what we see in the book of Revelation. And the God who told us about the first coming of Christ and what it would look like has also told us about the second coming of Christ and what it will look like. One of the things that a lot of people wrestle with is uh, the phrases in passages like these that talk about... um, These things which must soon take place. It's been 2,000 years. And some will say, well, you know, to God, um, 1,000 years is just a day. And so for God, it's only been a couple days. But for most people, that's not very convincing. They would say 2,000 years is a long time, no matter how you measure it. And so what is really going on there? Well, what I believe is going on there is... It's like um, God coming to Abraham and Sarah and saying, very soon, Sarah, you're going to be pregnant. Soon this is going to take place. But does that mean that, you know, very soon she's she's going to be having a baby right away? No, it means the process is going to start very soon. And I believe that's what's being talked about here is God is telling the church in the first century that the things that are pictured here in the book of Revelation are going to begin very, very soon. A lot of people connect a lot of what we find in Revelation to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And yet it goes beyond that to what we see happening at the end of the world. And so when Jesus says, if you look at verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Again, that's another thing that people look at and say, well, you know, it's been 2,000 years, maybe Jesus was wrong. Maybe he intended to come back like Harry Houdini. You know, I'm going to come back to you, my wife, and and let you know that there's life after death, and he still hasn't come back. And so some people look at that and say, well, see, I'm not so sure Jesus really can be trusted because he said I'm coming quickly. Well, the word quickly can mean suddenly, not necessarily right away. And in fact, there's a parable in which Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus told this parable because simple people thought the kingdom was coming right away when it wasn't going to come right away. But it says, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words. Of this prophecy, the word blessed or blessed means truly happy and to heed it means it actually changes my life. You know, if somebody says um, there's, there's a comet coming and it's going to strike this building in 10 minutes. If I believe that, I won't be here in 10 minutes. If I don't really believe it, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing, and we'll keep preaching and keep worshiping, and we won't worry about it. And so heeding is very much about whether or not what the Bible says is going to happen changes my life or not, or if it just sounds like a interesting story. It's just an interesting movie. It's just, you know, it's kind of entertaining to read through the book of Revelation, but is it life-changing or not? Well, if you go on to verse eight, it says, I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Now, this is the second time John had to be told not to do that. He's already fallen down before and worshiped the angel who was giving him these revelations, And again, he's told not to do that. What's that supposed to mean for you and me? Well, it's supposed to be a reminder that that is our sinful tendency. That we tend to worship the instruments of God and the means through which God blesses us. We tend to somehow conflate God and God's blessings. And so we worship our Husband or our wife, we worship our children, we worship our job, we worship all kinds of things that are just good gifts from God. They're just means through which God blesses us, just like that angel to John. And we're prone to look to them for our help and our happiness. And yet, God is the only one that's worthy of our worship. He's the only one that's worthy of us to look to Him for the help we need and the happiness our heart longs for. And we uh, sin when we look to other people or other things for that that's why john calvin could say man's nature so to speak is a perpetual factory of idols it means we're continually naturally apart from grace looking for something to put our hope in that's not god and it can be our spouse our children our job it can be all kinds of things, and we have to be careful of that. And I think that 's part of the the warning is that um, John was experiencing some great things he was seeing things that nobody had ever seen before. He was having revelations that nobody had ever had before, and the sinful tendency is to somehow worship the instrument rather than worship the God through which um, God is blessing us. Well, look at verse 10. He says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Again, there's a reference to something is going to happen soon. And I believe it's the beginning of the things talked about in the book. It doesn't mean the return of Christ is going to be just around the corner. This is in contrast to the book of Daniel where at the end of the book of Daniel, um, the angel actually says, Seal it up. It's going to be a long time before this happens. And so we see um, John... Uh, being told that what's ha- going to happen uh, is uh, that's pictured here in this book is going to begin right away. So it has application for the church of God throughout the centuries. There's an interesting verse in verse 11 where it says, "...let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy." That sounds like an endorsement. You know, if you're, you're living wrong, just keep living wrong. If you're living right, just keep living right. That's not what's ta- is being talked about here. In the context is talking about the fact that the return of Christ is certain. That all the things that are in this book are definitely going to happen. Which means whether people do what's right or do what's wrong, all of this stuff is going to happen whether or not our government does what's right or wrong, all of this is going to happen. Whether or not um, our parents or our spouses or our children or anyone else, we might put our hope into some degree, does what is right and wrong, what God says is going to happen. Nothing can thwart what God says is going to happen in this world, which means... His promises to you and me cannot be thwarted. He will keep his promise to us. Our Redeemer is faithful and true. He will keep his promises no matter what. He will take care of his people. We can trust him no matter what happens, regardless of whether or not the person you want to win the next election wins or not. These things will happen and God will keep his promises, and we can trust him for that. Well, a lot of people, a lot of Christians aren't really sure about what the return of Christ is going to look like. There's a lot of debate over the book of Revelation. There's a lot of debate over the book of Daniel and, and all the various passages that talk about what it's going to look like. But you can kind of boil it down to the orthodox view of Christianity is This world is going to come to an end in terms of what it is like now. That this sinful fallen world is going to come to an end. And the return of Christ is the key to that one way or the other. And that Jesus will come back to this earth, not just in spirit, but bodily. He's going to return and he's going to bring judgment and he's going to usher in heaven on earth and so every Christian can affirm that there's differences over things like is there a secret return of Christ or simply a public return of Christ are things going to get really bad before he comes back or are they going to get really good before he comes back um, could he return at any moment or are there some things we have to look for before he comes back well let me just kind of summarize for us as we wrap this up this morning in terms of what I believe the Bible tells us about the return of Christ. The first thing is that it is going to happen, even though we are tempted to doubt it. It says in Second Peter 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So the Bible itself says there are going to be people who say, where's Jesus? He said he's coming back. It's been 2,000 years. I don't think he's coming. And it's kind of like I mentioned Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini died suddenly. But before he died, he he promised his wife that if at all possible, he's going to come back. And let her know that there was life after death and that he was okay. And so he died on Halloween. And so every Halloween, she would have a seance. And try to connect with her dead husband. She did that for 10 years. And then after 10 years, she said, "Um, 10 years was long enough to wait for any man. That's the way some people think about the Lord Jesus. You know, He's been gone for a long time, uh, 10 years or so, or 2,000 years is long enough to wait for any man. Well, the Bible says, don't be surprised if people are saying that. But it doesn't mean he's not going to come, not at all. The Bible promises that he will, become, he will come back, and he'll come back just at the right time. He knows exactly when that needs to happen. The second thing is, the return of Jesus is going to be bodily. Some people, if they're what they call full preterists, they believe that everything in the New Testament has already happened, including the return of Christ. But the Bible says, no, Jesus is going to return bodily. Those who believe his return has already happened believe it's happened in a spiritual sense. The Bible says he's going to come back just like he left. In Acts chapter 1, it says they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This is when Jesus ascended to heaven. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So the Bible tells us the angels right there say, just like you saw Jesus rise up bodily in his, his physical body, glorified as it was right into heaven. He's going to come back in that same way, in that same body. And so, therefore, his return is going to be public. Now, there's some debate over whether or not there's also a secret return. But if you look at Matthew 24, it says in verse 29, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels in a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So you actually have the tribulation, you have the public return of Christ, and then you have the gathering of the elect. And so I believe the return of Christ is a very public event. People will see Jesus when he returns. The Bible says in one sense, this public return of Christ is going to be expected. It'll be expected by his people. In Luke 21, it says, but when these things, Jesus is telling uh, us, his people, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near." So he's saying there's going to be some things happening that are meant to cause you to think Jesus is about to come back. He goes on to say, "Then he told them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near." So you also when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the Lord Jesus says, just like a fig tree produces leaves, which indicates that summer is near, there are certain things that are going to happen that you'll know that my return is near. And Paul goes on to say in 2 Thessalonians that there are two primary things. There's the appearance of the man of lawlessness and there's the great apostasy. And those two things go together. The great apostasy is actually the worship of the man of lawlessness who is otherwise known as the Antichrist. And so there are those who would say, once you begin to see things happen like that, then people in the church will not say, I wonder if that was a sign of Jesus' soon return. I think Christians will say, Jesus is coming back soon. We will know it. I believe. I think that's the whole point. The whole point is, the parable of the fig tree means my people will know. That's why in First Thessalonians 5, 4, it says, you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Jesus is going to come back like a thief in one sense, but the people of God have enough of a warning and enough information so that they need not be caught completely off guard. And yet there's another sense in which even believers will not know the day or the hour. It will be sudden. It will be still unexpected in a sense. It will be expected and yet unexpected. That's why in Matthew 24, and I'm having to go through this, Quickly, but it, I put these scriptures in your notes so you can go back and look at them. But in Matthew 24, verse 36, it says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father alone. So in one sense, in Matthew, Jesus can say, You can begin to see things that indicate that my return is near within a generation. But no one will know the exact day Hour, not even you. Because, as it says, the angels don't know, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. He's talking to Christians. Be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. In one sense, I think you, Christians will understand that within this generation, Jesus is going to come back. But we will not know the day or the hour. Just like a pregnant woman begin to know that, okay, I'm in labor. That means this baby is coming soon. But may not know exactly the moment that that baby is going to be birthed i think it's the same thing in terms of how the bible talks about these things well ultimately the, the return of christ brings about the end the end of sin and death and suffering the end of this fallen world that's why it says in 1st corinthians 15 but each in his own order christ the first fruits after that those who are christ at his coming then comes The end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. It's the end of all bad, but it's the beginning of all good, because at the return of Christ is the beginning of the consummated kingdom. All that we long for, all that we want to see in terms of heaven on earth, is what will begin. And that's what's pictured in the parable of the tares. You might remember the parable of the tares in which it says, um, he explains the parable of the tares. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, where uh, he's talking about the son of man sowing seed in the world. The field is the world and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Tares are bad plants sowed among good plants And the enemy who sold them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. So that there's an end in one sense. But then later on, he says, after all this has taken place, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So there's an end, but there's a beginning to something great and glorious that we can only imagine. So, what are you supposed to do with this? The the return of Christ has been called, in Titus 2, the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope supposed to do? When it says three times in Revelation 22, I am coming quickly, or I'm coming suddenly, I'm coming suddenly, I'm coming suddenly. What is that supposed to do for us? Well, if we put our hope in that, it says something about where our happiness is lies if we don't care about the return of christ it might be because our hope is in this world for the happiness we long for and that's why you have um, what it says in uh, peter where it says therefore prepare your excuse me first peter therefore prepare your minds for action keep sober in spirit fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Peter says that we are to fix our hope completely on what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. That's where we find our true happiness because what happens? Like it says in that song, my Redeemer is faithful and true. I will see my Lord face to face. Do you know why you were given eyes? see the glory of Christ. You know why you were given ears? To hear his voice. You know why you were given the sense of smell and taste and touch? So that you might enjoy all that he is and all that he gives. You were made for God. To see him, to hear him, to enjoy him. That's why it says in John 17, 24, Jesus says... I want them to see my glory, the glory that I had with you from the beginning of the world. I want them to see. I want my people to see my glory. Why? So that they might have my joy. So that they might be fully and forever happy. And that's why the return of Christ is our blessed hope. Let me just wrap it up by reminding you of one other parable. There's a parable in Matthew 24, 25. It's a parable of the ten virgins. You can read that parable. In the parable, you've got this picture of a, a wedding. And in that day and time, the the uh, man and woman that were getting married would basically um, commit to one another. Then there was this period of time between that commitment and when they would consummate the marriage. And what we find in this parable is the consummation of the marriage. And the man is coming or for the, the bride. And you've got a situation where you've got these uh, ladies who are waiting to be a part of this consummation. But it says five of them were prudent and five of them were Foolish. Five were wise and and five were foolish. They had lamps because what typically happened is the man would come to get the bride at night and the procession would take place at night. And so these attendants would have lamps to help light the way for this wedding procession and for the consummation and the wedding feast and all that was going to happen. And so we've got this picture of uh, these 10 young ladies that fall asleep. And all of a sudden, they hear the word, the bridegroom is coming. And they jump up and they light their lamps. And five of them have plenty of oil. And five of them don't have enough. And they're unprepared for what is happening. And they ask for oil from the other five wise uh, young ladies. They say, no, we don't have enough. You're going to have to go buy some. And so the five foolish virgins go off to buy oil. And the bridegroom comes while they're gone and the five wise, young ladies that are wise go in to the wedding feast. The other ones come back, they knock on the door and they say, let us in. And The bridegroom says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And the conclusion of it says, be on the alert then for you do not know the day or the hour. The bridegroom is obviously a picture of Jesus. The oil in the lamp is often a picture of the Holy Spirit, meaning a life lived to the glory of God in dependence on God. And those who are prepared for the return of the bridegroom are those who are living to to the glory of God through their dependence on God. It's not something we can do in our own power. When I was uh, pastoring that little country church in Louisiana in the afternoons, I would go visit people and I would drop in. I didn't have to call ahead. I got to California and I tried that a few times and it didn't work because out here you have to give people a heads up. Back there, the idea was, in some sense, we're just going to be ready for people to come by. That's exactly what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible says, get ready for a visit not just a visit of other christians or the visit of family get ready for the visit of jesus because he's going to be coming suddenly expectedly in some sense but unexpectedly in another sense not knowing the day or the hour and that's why titus 2 tells us to live our lives In a godly way, trusting God and loving people, doing good works, being filled with a life that pleases and honors God. Because that is the way that we prepare for this drop by unexpected visitation of the one who created us and the one who redeemed us, redeemed all those who will trust him. The end of this passage, it says, take the water of life which means it's offered to every single person through the gospel, that you can have eternal life. It's yours for the taking. If you'll simply trust Jesus and receive him for who he is, the Lord and savior of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is faithful and true, that we can trust you to keep your promises that we can believe what you say, that it is really the truth that we need to hear. It's ultimately meant to warn us of a judgment that is to come. But it's also ultimately meant to help us prepare for that judgment and to be faithful no matter what happens. So please, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet taken the water of life, and trusted the Lord Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, please grant them grace to do so this very day. And Father, for all of us who have received the Lord Jesus and have begun to drink and, and to taste and see that the Lord is good, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, strengthen our hope, and grant that we would fix our hope completely on the revelation of Jesus one day and on the heaven that's going to be brought to earth when he returns. And may it free us to praise you and thank you in the hard times. And may it free us to love those who are hard to love. Because we're not looking to them, we're looking to you for all that we need and all that we desire. Please help us. We thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.